Welcome to another edition of the Populous Papers, where the elixir vitae awaits your indulgence. Guy's getting into magic, huh? That's what this manager of mine said as he was butting into a conversation to tell us all about how the part of Chicago he's from is where all the magic shops are. Now, I never did figure out if he was talking about tricks or the occult, but you know what? It doesn't matter, because it's the same thing. Think about it. In either case, it's a fusion of art with psychology, a celebration of transformation, and a deepening of the mystery. Now, isn't that a curious word? Mystery. Mist and eerie. I also like dividing the word hypnosis in half. Hip and gnosis. It's like a cool way of knowing. So it turns out stage shows are actually shamanic ceremonies. The audience is a gathering of the tribes. And when someone is called up, often a younger person, it's like their walkabout. That sense of danger that comes with abandoning the tribe. The volunteer has entered into this gray area, where they're no longer a part of the old normie world, but they're not quite in the world of the wizard, either. Like the somnambulist who's neither asleep nor awake, but in this third magical state. And the best part is, when the volunteer is released, they get to return to the tribe with a huge applause. It's the hero's journey. Departure, tribulation, return. The shaman is the showman, and the magician is literally the medium, bringing together the world of the mundane with the world of the divine. So how real is magic? Well, Queen Elizabeth had a court wizard, and she wasn't messing around. It's been said that magic is a closed door, but it is not locked. It's a web of energy that's both there and not there. The universe itself is the master alchemist, creating substance through special mixtures of elements and equations. Ken Kesey defined magic as that single moment when a crack forms in your mind that lets the light in, and then all the possibilities open up. In England and parts of the East Coast, you might hear the word wicker pronounced wicker. And it turns out that both wicker and wicca have to do with bending and shaping. So you're weaving the outcome. So indeed, a magician is practicing Wicca, if they're any good. You know, Larry David called out an interesting magic technique known as Magician's Choice in an episode of Curb when they were doing the eeny, meeny, miny, mo. Because, you know, when it gets to mo, it's actually up to you to decide if somebody's out or if they're it. You know, it could be, you're mo, you're out. Or you could say, mo, you're safe, you win. <laughs> See, it's all up to your willpower to weave the desired outcome. Kind of reflects the malleable nature of reality. Hey, this is serious stuff, and it's part of why magicians have been burned at the stake. Even if the magic is just in people's minds, the process doesn't matter so much as the results. It's about the feeling produced. Besides, there is such a thing as consensus reality, 
which means that if you get enough people believing in something, it doesn't matter if it's real or not. I mean, just look at Fox News. Groucho Marx actually has a great quote. That's right, I'm a Marxist. I won't belong to any club that would have me as a member. But what Groucho said was that the secret to life is honesty and fair dealing. If you can fake that, you got it made. I uh, never really got into Harry Potter, but I do appreciate his name. A potter is a kind of craftsman, right? And Harry is used as a way of addressing the Lord, like in Harry Krishna. And Herr actually means master in German, so he is like a master craftsman. And Herr as a verb means to move swiftly, like the tortoise and the hare. Which brings me to the tradition of pulling the rabbit out of a hat. It's something out of nothing. The miraculous within the ordinary. A take on how the universe came into being, and it definitely has tinges of both Buddhism and Kabbalah. You know, I heard a rabbi explain once that the whole something out of nothing reference is also a bit of a life lesson. That you have to go through a certain period of feeling like a nobody in order to make that transformation and truly become somebody. He said that uh, the messianic age hasn't happened yet because that'll be the day when everyone is a miracle worker, not just one select prophet. So the idea is that one day, everybody will be doing magic. More on that later. But first, why a rabbit? Well, they're pretty quiet and still, but they also weave in and out of the underworld with ease. And many seem to view them as sort of a guide through the spirit world. At least Jeffrey Chaucer, Lewis Carroll, and Donnie Darko all did. You got trickster archetypes like Puck, Bugs Bunny, Br'er Rabbit, the Trix Rabbit, and the Quick Bunny. Remember Quick? Rabbits have come to be associated with the moon and fertility, which is perhaps why people keep a rabbit's foot around, especially if they're trying to conceive. And to this day, many British people consider it good luck to wake up on the first day of the month and immediately say white rabbits three times. You should try it. But most importantly, the word rabbit is only one letter removed from rabbi. You know Rabbi Rabbit? Rabbis did bring us that uh, kind of wizardly heavy metal look. And some have even speculated that the Pope has bunny ears. And what does the Pope say about the magical arts? Don't dabble. But what's really the opposite of dabbling? <laughs> it's going all in. Now certain esoteric fraternities claim that they derive from an ancient craft. Brothers of the craft. And I'm like, witchcraft? <laughs> witchcraft indeed. Did you ever hear about the witch's broom handle being rubbed with psychedelic ointments and then used as a self-pleasuring device? <laughs> Might have something to do with where all those uh, witchy caricatures come from, flying around on brooms and never really needing males around. So back to that theme of weaving. If you've ever seen a really good linking rings act, then you've seen a display of life's interconnectedness. We are bound by the ring, like Saturn, yet endlessly interlaced with each other's lives. It's a phantom thread. And if you've seen an escape artist, you've witnessed a breaking out of the bondage. That spirit of triumph and liberation. A levitation teaches us to rise above and how to overcome the burdens leaving our material world behind. And I gotta say, I like that magic involves spells. When you're raised by an English teacher, spelling was always a big deal. You gotta spell it out. And you may not know this, 
But the word abracadabra actually means it is created as it is spoken, which harkens back to this Kabbalistic notion that words manifest into things and that the universe is created through sound. Remember, you're having a spell put under you every time you go into a new place. That's why the sign says entrance. You're entranced. The Unfortune purported that the magician themselves is the most powerful magic wand of all. It's like the word sorcerer to source or manifest something. You are the source. And she might have even been hinting at the potential of pea power. Remember, Isaac Newton spent more time with the elements of urine than he did with any other scientific undertaking. And if you heard the Renewable Revolution episode of this podcast, then you already know I'm a really, really big fan of this idea of self-generation, being your own power source. And the BBC right now is reporting that your next car could run on pee. Imagine that level of self-sufficiency, filling your own tank, and not just as a prank. That's when everyone will be doing magic. So let's talk about playing cards. They were used as everything from love letters and invitations to meal tickets for soldiers. During World War II, some of the cards even had secret maps if you peeled back the lining. In France, they were outlawed several times throughout the 1300s because the clergy was worried about the rise of gambling among the lower classes. It was like the original satanic panic. And in England, you could only play with cards during the 12 days of Christmas. And the Ace of Spades became known as the card of death since that card served as the tax stamp. And the taxes were high on playing cards. It was a luxury item. So forging one could actually get you the death penalty. The last person to have been executed for that was Richard Harding. He was hanged in 1805. Now people use them to play Go Fish. But the decks still hold oracular powers. As the libraries of ancient Egypt burned to the ground... The decision was made to embed some of Earth's most sacred wisdom in playing cards. Because even during wars on intellectualism, there will always be an appetite for gambling and game-playing. It's like a Torah being smuggled through the ages, right in plain sight. And you notice that the word tarot is almost the same thing as Torah. Also, it's the rota, or wheel, of... Fortune! A deck of cards is a solar calendar, in that the sum total of each individual card adds up to 365. You got 52 cards for the 52 weeks, the 13 cards represent the 13 months on a lunar calendar, and the two colors are for the two hemispheres of the Earth and your brain. The four suits can represent the four seasons or the four elements, some historians suggest the four kings are based on the four great kings, Alexander, Caesar, David, and Charles. And that the suits are also symbolic of the four classes from medieval society. Hearts or cups for the clergy, swords or spades for nobility, coins or diamonds for the merchants, and clubs for the peasants. Both the Crowley and Waite decks admittedly were designed to help the uninitiated gain an interest in occult ideas. It's sad, a lot of times, all people really know about magic is what they pick up from horror movies. I was lucky enough to learn about it from the Squared Circle, the WWF. I think I was about nine, and the Ultimate Warrior was still undefeated. Until Papa Shango, 
the Black Witch Doctor from Parts Unknown came to town. By the way, you think there could be a connection between witch doctors that shrink your head and a shrink that shrinks your ego? <laughs> anyway, Papa Shango kept putting these spells on the warrior, and eventually his appendix even burst. I remember a warning flashing on the TV about sensitive viewers before uh, cutting to the ultimate warrior puking up all over the place backstage. And I was like, all right, all right, all right. The fights might be fake, but the spells are definitely for real. I was a big Alice Cooper fan at that age as well. I mean, you take a look at his stage presence. It's like an entire Halloween show, and he always held a magic wand. Sometimes it took the form of a cane or a sword, but every time he performed, the wand made him bigger and better in some way. I never got great at sleight of hand, but I've always seemed to have this unusual gift for creeping people out. There was one time when I was still a PI, I was waiting in line at the courthouse for some documents, and there was a woman there yelling at her kid, Mason, get over here! So I let several minutes pass, and when the timing was right, I turn around and I put my hand up to my head in this really dramatic way. And I was like, oh, wait, I'm getting something. Is your son's name Mason? And she totally flipped out. Oh my God, how'd you do that? That's scary. Meanwhile, this other guy in line was like, I gotta take you to Vegas. So it really amazes me, you know, not only seeing different people's reactions, the scared to the opportunistic, also what you can do just by paying attention. I mean, I didn't need even a single prop to pull off that effect. And also, it's in that spirit of playfulness that some of the best magic is discovered. You know, Bob Carson actually invented the zombie ball just by fooling around. So how great would it be if every single elementary school had a magic club? Not only can magic help you overcome social anxiety and make friends, it can expand your perception and critical thinking skills. Magic helps build leadership qualities because you have to deal with these little crises that come up from time to time and how to solve them. But most importantly, it gives you something to do when you're bored. (laughs) It'll keep kids out of gangs. And as Jeff McBride said, when you're doing magic, you don't get nervous. You get prepared. And it even teaches them about the world of business. I know third graders right now already making 50 bucks an hour after taking one of my magic classes. Forget about a lemonade stand. Just put a few of your favorite tricks together, get really good at them, and then start showing up to every party you can. This one student of mine even built his own magic trick. He told me he was going to sell it for $100, plus $100 tax. You study magic, and you'll start to see all the different ways in which the world deceives you. It could be little micro-movements, or micro-expressions that people make right as they're about to tell a lie. PIs have to learn this stuff. Seeing these tiny deceptions may only take a second, but it's a dead giveaway, if you know what you're looking for. I mean, one little glance could be the entire secret to the effect, whereas some huge obvious gesture is more likely to be a misdirection. Now, the corporate media is an expert at this. They downplay the real news stories, while the silly, inconsequential things are built up and made into a big deal. Many magical practitioners do rituals or affirmations to help anchor their intentions into the physical world. Chaos magicians often use any and every source available to help tip the scales of chance in their favor. 
Apparently the concept of quantum indeterminacy is proving very difficult for some of the more no-nonsense scientists. That is, ones who don't believe that magic is possible. The notion that particles can change just from being observed is pretty mind-blowing. Not to mention the principle of entanglement, which states that if something has been in contact with something else, they'll continue to act on each other, even over a distance. Long after the physical contact has been severed, even Einstein said he was spooked out by that one. So let's go over a few magicians you should know. From France, Jean-Eugène Robert Houdin was pretty radical. Not only did he take his wife's name, which was extremely unusual in the 1800s, but he was a clockmaker who invented one of the very first automatons, which went on to inspire the first real computer. This Houdin guy, he kind of took magic out of the streets, where it was considered to be crude and somewhat criminal, and he brought it into the proper setting of the theater. So instead of robes and wizard hats, he put on a nice tuxedo. At one point, Houdin tried to retire, but the French government was like, uh-uh, boo-boo, we got a job for you. So they sent him down to Algeria, which was French-occupied at the time, because there was this rebellion brewing. And Houdin was meant to quell it as sort of an ambassador. So when he got there, he showed off some of his very best electromagnetic skills, which convinced the local shaman to call off the uprising. I mean, Houdin was the only person doing magic like that at the time, so it probably was pretty intense. And I know it sounds like I'm siding with the colonists in this case, but uh, hey, Houdin stopped bloodshed from happening, and that is miraculous. Next, Harry Keller, Dean of American Magic, Freemason, and the most prolific performer of his time. Keller's posters usually had imps and devils on them. He's kind of implying that his skills really were cultivated through some kind of demonic force. And they loved it. I mean, audiences showed up in droves to see his decapitation act. It was very enticing stuff, especially for the turn of the century. Another Freemason, Chung Ling Su, always wore traditional Chinese outfits in his acts. And then he died on stage in the middle of a show during a botched bullet catch. It's only because of his makeup being removed during autopsy that the public learned his real identity. William Ellsworth Robinson, about the most Anglo name you can think of. And sure enough, he was not really Chinese. It was almost a carny kind of thing. Um, you know, they used to do that a lot. They'd take one of their own and they'd dress him up to look really exotic, like some sort of a specialty act from far away. Again, we're talking about a couple hundred years ago, when it was a big deal to encounter someone from another part of the world. You got Washington Irving Bishop, a 32nd degree Freemason and mentalist who performed for a very prestigious audience at the New York Lambs Club back in 1889. Now, he happened to suffer from catalepsy, which is this condition that can put you into a trance and basically slows your vital signs down to the point you can actually appear to be dead. So Bishop collapses in the middle of his show at the Lambs Club, and these three doctors were in the audience. So they ordered an immediate autopsy. And it sounds like these doctors may have been a little too eager, because they went straight for his brain. Presumably, they were curious as to whether or not there are any physical explanations for Bishop's mind-reading abilities. So then, a note was discovered in Bishop's jacket, and it explained his entire illness and that he wasn't dead, but before the note materialized, these goons had already sliced up his brain. Sloppy. 
Bishop's mother actually spent several decades reaching out to all of his lodge brothers, trying to kind of rally support for bringing murder charges against these doctors, but uh, they were never convicted. Adelaide Herman, the queen of magic, ruled the stage for over 50 years. Born in London, 1853, to Belgian parents, she started as a dancer in the Kuralfi troupe, eventually marrying into the Herman family and taking over the main act when her husband passed away. This is totally radical, because everyone told her she couldn't do it. A single woman going from town to town back then? But she did it on her own for 20 years, well into her 70s. And at one point, she performed the bullet catch. But it wasn't the catching of six different militiamen's bullets in her mouth that everyone was so baffled by. No! It was seeing a woman wearing a pair of black slacks for the first time that was truly shocking. Doug Henning was this hippie magician from Canada. He also got really active in politics and actually ran for office with the Natural Law Party at one point. Later in life, he went deep into the world of transcendental meditation. And before his death in 2000, he was working on a theme park idea near Niagara Falls. And it was going to be this attraction that actually takes you on a journey into the heart of a rose. How cool would that be? What I liked most about Doug Henning was his childlike nature. He had this way of sort of discovering the magic with us rather than just being a show-off. Eugene Berger, who passed away very recently, he called himself a bizarrist, and he wanted a gothic revival in magic to help make it more powerful again. He focused not just on the effect, but on the mood and the atmosphere that magic could generate. And I loved what Eugene said about having a very important job on this planet, to wake people up. And Jeff McBride. He brought the juice of the tribal fire dance to his show, which he calls Renaissance Kabuki from Mars. Now, before I turn it over to one of the best magicians working today, there's one more performer that deserves some honorable mention. The son of a rabbi, Eric Weiss, was born in Budapest, Hungary. Although he lied in his autobiography, claiming to be from Appleton, Wisconsin. Eric's nickname was Airy, and his stage name was actually Airy the Great for a brief period, before changing his last name to Houdini as a nod to Houdan. He could hold his breath for up to three minutes. A world record held all the way up until another great Jewish magician broke it, David Blaine, in 2008, when he held his breath for a full three minutes, 33 seconds. What's really interesting is how Houdini became an enemy of the spiritualist movement after his fellow mason, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle hosted a seance in which Jean Leckie, that was uh, Doyle's wife at the time, she claimed to be in touch with Houdini's recently deceased mom. Now, they were really, really tight, Houdini and his mother, and he may have actually believed there was a way for them to connect again through a medium until Jean wrote out this really long letter. It was like 10 pages. She alleged it was from Houdini's mom, but the letter was in English, which she did not speak. It referred to him by the wrong name. She never called him Harry. And it had a Christian cross on it, which, I'm sorry, but the wife of a rabbi would never, ever do. So Houdini was furious enough. He actually waged a crusade against the phony spiritualist movement, putting on disguises and busting up seances like an undercover cop. He was already very friendly with the world of law enforcement, having taught the Chicago PD how to get out of handcuffs. And there's even evidence of him working as a spy during World War I. 
But by 1926, Houdini had warned a few of his close friends that he was, quote, marked for death. He died on Halloween night of that year of appendicitis, which they thought was brought on by a blow to the stomach. And mind you, even Houdini's own great-nephew was trying to get the corpse exhumed somewhat recently. There was never an autopsy done on Houdini's body, by the way. That way they could finally test it for poison. But if you read this letter from Doyle, uh, Keith Olbermann actually did a whole segment about it on his old show. It's kind of like Doyle bragging that Houdini uh, was going to get messed up. And Doyle's exact words in the letter were that Houdini would get his just desserts very exactly meted out. I think there is a general payday coming soon. Definite Illuminati. All right. Before I turn it over to David Groves, I just want to ask everyone to please follow me on Twitter and Instagram. It's at Colin Kramer, spelled with zero vowels, so at C-L-N-K-R-M-R. And please like our Facebook page, The Populous Papers Podcast. With me now in the studio is author and magician David Groves. David, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, You're welcome. So first I want to ask you about your background in journalism. What got you started writing? Well, I've always been good at writing, and I think it's because that part of my brain has just developed. And uh, I learned at an early age that um, that I, I, I knew language really, really well. And so I developed that part, and I became a journalist in high school, and then I, I, I studied uh, literature in college. And then I, um, <laughs> you know, there was a professor who said, uh, it is impossible to become a professional, full-time paying writer uh, in, in this society these days. And um, I proved him wrong, and I proved him right. Hmm. So when did you first get into magic? Well, I had spent ten years in uh, ten years in writing as a professional writer. I wrote about a um, thousand articles uh, in for the women's magazines and the health magazines and um, and newspapers on four continents, and um, and I got deeply into the writing subculture, and um, and then I I uh, got into I got into magic. Um, because I was disappointed in the money <laughs> in the in the writing area. Right. It's important to balance it all out. So talk to us a little bit about how the nature of lying fits into all of this. Well, at a certain point with my writing, I decided to, um, I decided I couldn't take it any further. Um, the, my bank account couldn't take it any further. So a, a friend of mine said that if you uh, dressed up like a Ninja Turtle, and jumped around at a par- at a party, at a kids party, you could make $75 an hour. But you had to do some simple magic. And now 
at that point, I was kind of at a turning point because part of me said, be responsible, become a corporate writer and, you know, work for Southern California Edison or, you know, write, write lies for some corporation or other. And, um, and that would have been the responsible thing to do. But I decided they, they don't really respect what, what I respect exactly. So they didn't, I didn't have, get an, have an immediate job offer, even though I, I was published at all these women's magazines. And so um, I started, uh, for every hour that I put in getting a corporate job, my own predilection was to put in about 40 hours on magic because I just started getting fascinated with the whole, with, with the whole deception thing. I had grown up very, very honest and squeaky clean. And I was fascinated, at, at, especially at people who can lie, who can lie right to your face. And, you know, I mean, we're going through the whole period in this country where we're, um, one of our uh, major leaders is lying to the country every single day. He's a brilliant liar. And I wanted to study brilliant liars. And it studying magic really, I mean, it, it, they break it down into principles. They've got, you know, principles and, and uh, of, of magic and deception. And um, it's, it's that part of my brain which was underdeveloped at the time. It's so funny that we even have that connection. I, uh, I was doing balloon animals, twisting them since I was a teenager. And then after college, started doing a science show, kind of like Bill Nye the Science Guy, trying to make science fun for kids. It was a bubble show. I could put you inside of a giant bubble, uh, sculpt bubbles into Mickey Mouse ears or rainbows. And then, uh, and then I started doing a magic show. So who were the magicians that inspired you the most? Well, you know, when I first got into magic, I, did, I, I, I pretty quick, quickly wanted to move out of the kid stuff. I mean, I love kids. Uh, the only problem is it, a lot of times it feels like childcare. And so I wanted to perform for my peers and do something serious. So um, I started focusing on this. Um, I, I, I got into the Magic Castle within nine months of picking up a magic trick. And I decided to, um, to figure out who the best guys were and follow them. And there were two guys that I focused on. And to this day, I mean, they're really beacons in the magic world. And it's Johnny Ace Palmer, Johnny Ace Palmer, who is um, the world champion from 1989. Uh, and then uh, Bodine Belasco, who you won't find much about him on the Internet as a magician. He's a corporate speaker and a motivational speaker, and he, you know, he charges like ten thousand dollars for, for a show, and um, and for for a long time, uh, I actually became kind of um, a disciple of Johnny Ace Palmer. Uh, I would go to his r gigs where he was doing magic, and I would follow him around like a poodle, just waiting for pearls of wisdom to drop from his lips, and um, and then Bodine, I didn't get to know until about two thousand and four. And um, he was, uh, and now I become a, a good friend of his. So those were two beacons. Cool. So I've noticed that a lot of magic seems to be about defiance. Would you say that a lot of the magicians you've known have had problems with authority? Yeah, I guess you're right. I mean, I haven't looked at it th that way that much, but um, I mean, they're defying the universe. They're They're saying... You know the. In fact, when I when I look at kids, when I teach kids, I I look at them and they they just get delighted by this idea that they're doing something that that the universe tells them that they're not they they can't be able to do. So there's an intellectual defiance. Is that what you're talking about? 
Yeah, and that's a really big deal when you're studying children's theater or theater of the absurd. It's like that, that childlike understanding that the world is an absurd place. And it works because kids know that we're kind of adulterating the universe when we try and rationalize it. Right, right. Well, one of my, one of my earliest mentors was, um, was uh, I won't give his name, but he was, he, was, he was really rebellious. He was dysfunctional. He was brought up uh, with all sorts of issues. And, but by the time I got to him, he had been in magic for 17 years. And he was, he was all messed up. He was all messed up, and um, but he he had the secrets, so I followed him around a little bit, and he had he analyzed himself by saying that you know I do tricks, I do all sorts of tricks where I tear something up and I put it back back together again, you know, torn and restored newspaper, torn and restored this, torn and restored that. He says I got issues, <laughs> destructive tendencies. I often wonder about this. Are there any rules as to whether or not magicians are supposed to espouse a belief in real magic? Yeah, there's, um, you know, the general belief is that you're supposed to do what, um, there was a famous magician, I forget it, forget which one, who who said that you're supposed to walk a line and, and say this kind of gobbledygook that will allow people to believe if they want to, but... If people don't believe, people, those people will think that you're coming out against it. So you say something like, I know, I, I, I know some people won't believe it. Uh, what I'm doing is, is not magic, but it's not, uh, you know, it's not, it's, I'm not fooling people either. It's something that's natural. It comes to people. It's psychological. And, you know, you do this kind of gobbledygook that lets people believe what they want to believe. And they and they will believe. You know, there's a, a, a friend of mine had this woman come up to him. And uh, this happens actually kind of on a, on a regular basis where somebody will come up to you and say, I know some of that, that stuff you're doing is tricks. But that, that other thing, that one thing, that's real magic. And so people will make their own decisions on that too. Huh. You know, what's interesting is that I've, I've, I've done kind of a, I've done some writing on belief in magic. And I found that probably 40 or 50% of Americans and a much higher uh, percentage of, of certain other countries believe in real magic. I mean, you've got, you've got the Brujo tradition in Mexico. You've got people who believe in, in, in crystals and New Age in this country. You've got uh, people who are, who are fundamentalists who believe, uh, you know, like my, uh, my, my girlfriend's mother who, who, you know, believes that there are, I mean, there's satanic stuff that's what they that's what they believe and and um there's a lot of traditions um who who believe in real magic well what do you think is real magic possible you know i'm kind of an agnostic i'm i'm kind of an agnostic by nature and i i don't really i mean i've i've heard some really interesting stories they're rare stories i i i think maybe i hope i hope there's some magic in the world um, but I'm not sure. Well, is there anyone you'd consider to have come closest to performing real magic? Well, there's this anthropologist named uh, David something or other. I forget his last name. He wrote a book called The Spell of the Sensuous. His book is, is, is a very dense philosophical book, but he, he talked to me one time about how when he was going through Asia, he was doing sleight of hand, and 
he was doing a false transfer to try to make a coin vanish. It's a it's a trick, false transfer. And um, and when he tried to give the coin to somebody, it actually disappeared in his hand. It actually did disappear in his hand. And that started happening th through throughout Asia and in different parts of, of you know sacred areas. And he he started to believe that the hand movements that magicians use are can be can sometimes be resemble sacred mudras, which are hand positions in the Hindu tradition, and that uh, he thinks that sometimes we can actually induce real magic. And sometimes things that I've done have really shocked me too, and the things that I've picked up from people. I mean, like mind reading and that kind of stuff. It's fascinating. I've certainly had occasions where I'll be in the middle of a trick and I won't need to take that extra step, you know, and it tends to kind of depend on who's in the room, which is really interesting. But yeah, I've definitely had some happy accidents that, man, really uh, made me look good. So back to this question of uh, deviant behavior, I understand that uh, trickery might be passed down genetically. So was there anyone in your family that had a reputation for trickery or deception? In my in my own family, well, you know, I think there is like a part of the, it's, there's a part of the brain that, that engages deception. Um, I think deception is kind of a continuum. I mean, at the, at the far end, you, you, you have people who, who really are committing crimes and fooling people that way. Then you have magicians who, um, who have less nefarious intentions. Then you have people who think strategically people who are trying to design, trying to PR people or people in advertising who are trying to create uh, an impression of like, uh, you know, like when I go on fake Facebook, I, I never try to create a sense that I'm a loser, you know? I mean, that's strategic thinking. And then of course there are the people who are squeaky clean, like my girlfriend, Claire. But um, there was uh, my great uncle, is that, is that who you're referring to? Oh yeah. Yeah, my great uncle was a was a professional card cheat, and they kept me away from him when, when I was younger, because he was he was a bad man. I mean, he was thrown out of Vegas, he was kicked out of Vegas um, for cheating, and he would he he did con games and he he uh, drove people around in the uh, he drove taxi in the forties and he would drive he would find uh, traveling salesmen and steer them to a poker game. Uh, that he said, oh yeah, there's a, if you have nothing to do, there's this poker game over here. And, and he would sit in on the poker game and they would make lots and lots of money. And um, his wife forbade him to do it. But um, once she found $5,000 in his, in his sock drawer and she did not mention it to him. She just took half of it <laughs> and it was never mentioned again. Five grand in the forties could have gone a long way. Really? And did you discover any artifacts of his? I mean, I don't know about usable stuff, but was there at least uh, maybe some items of interest? Yeah, I, um, I I had thought that his daughter had passed away, but when I started researching, I realized a couple years ago that she was she was still around. Um, she's I think she's eighty now, and she's in great health. And she, when we got to know her, I mean, we had to prove to her that we weren't con men. <laughs> you know, people coming back from 
after all these years who were trying to con her. She's actually very, very well off. And uh, she ended up sending me this box full of his old marked cards that were marked not in the way that magic decks are marked. I mean, you can buy a marked deck at a magic shop for ten dollars, but but these are these are decks that were marked in an extremely sophisticated way. And I brought one of those decks to the Magic Castle, and I talked to all the best guys at the Magic Castle, about fifteen different guys showed the marking the backs to them and they could not for the life of them figure out how how those cards were marked because they were marked by by a real pro and and those pros it's a you know it's a very small small subculture and um finally i brought it to a guy who really knows i can't tell you his name but he uh he really knew and within 10 minutes he could tell me what company marked it uh uh what company uh how it was marked uh, what it was, what what games it was used for, and uh, he knew all about it. And when did you become a member of the castle? It was nine <clears throat> months after I got interested in magic, and I was I was so absorbed and so obsessed with magic that I would I got a major insomnia because I would be thinking about magic so much all the time that that I would I would lay down my head and all of a sudden my head would clear and the things that would rush into my head were tricks, you know? And I would have to, I, would, I, I wouldn't be able to get to sleep thinking about this stuff. So uh, I got obsessed and you, in order to become a member of the Magic Castle, you have to audition with three sleight of hand professional level tricks. And um, so within nine months, I went up for my lesson and I made one small mistake, um, which a lot of people wouldn't even consider it a mistake, but I made a small mistake, but they let me in anyway. Hmm. So, it's interesting how many performers tend to be night owls. There's just got to be something astrological when the best ideas shoot out at nighttime. You bet. So, what's better, the Magic Castle or the Magic Circle? <laughs> well, I've been to the Magic Circle, and you know, the Magic Castle is a commercial place where you can dress up and go where regular people can dress up and go and they'll see performances seven nights a week. The Magic Circle is more exclusive. It's less commercial as all English things are, <laughs> less commercial than American things. And so at the Magic Circle, they the magicians get together on Monday night, and every Monday night, and uh, and they, they share magic tricks. Uh, they've got, uh, they get an open, they, they get a bar, uh, a cash bar, and um, and they've got a lot of great magicians from all around the country who just go there on Monday night, and um, yeah, it's uh, they're they're very different, very different creatures. But they they both have actually what they use. It's at the Magic Circle, uh, they rent rent the place out to corporations for parties, mm-hmm. and they're really busy every night in December because of all the ho- holiday parties. Um, <clears throat> But um, and it's and it's down this muse, you know, these uh, these really small obscure streets uh, on I think Sullivan Way near Houston Station, and I met some really great magicians there who, you know, English magicians. Yeah, they do things properly. Yeah, in London, and in the library, I actually went down to the library, and they I was able to handle. They have an incredible library, and they I was able to handle the first magic book 
published in English uh, ever. It was published in 1584. It was called Discovery of Witchcraft by Reginald Scott. And they actually put it in my hands, which I really did not want to hold this thing because it's worth thousands of dollars, you know. And uh, because, you know, you're holding this thing and it, and your hands might be sweating. Sure. You, you could damage it. And I looked through it a little bit and then I put it down. And then on the wall, they, have, they had a photograph of uh, Prince Charles who had auditioned for the for the magic circle and he got in of course they got a picture they got they got a photograph of his audition with the cups and balls so it does seem though like some of the most entertaining magicians are not necessarily some of the most skilled and vice versa that's true so i mean what do you think is more important in pulling off a good magic show is it strong presentational skills or more of a mastery of effects well i think you know i think you have to you have to work towards both equally equally you know in the beginning in the beginning when i was doing magic i thought really the most important part was entertainment in the last few years i've come around to improving my my methods to the max and um you know what's interesting and i think i think you'll be interested in this is that as i've improved my met like push my methods push the envelope with my methods i've realized the way in which my brain works you know, some people are original thinkers and some people are conventional thinkers. And um, I, by when as you create this stuff and as you you push your show in different directions, you um, you find out how your mind works. It's like a Rorschach test, you know. But of course, a lot of a lot of the effort that I put into my show, I really put a lot of effort into the the words, the exact wording, the script. You know, being a professional writer, that's what I bring to the table. And also, I, I spent my uh, my teenage years and into college as a classical pianist. So, what was really important to me was to get uh, was to practice enough to get to the point where your hands are doing these motions and your mouth is doing the doing the talk, the patter, and 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 it looks totally natural. And it's amazing what. Uh, what 10,000 hours will do for you. you know? <laughs> <laughs> sure. Um, <clears throat> right, that storytelling aspect definitely goes so far, and uh, it's unfortunate to see, especially younger magicians, trying to just you know, rush through a whole bunch of different effects when you know, people are going to forget all that stuff anyway. Yeah. And really, the audience just wants to get to know you. Mm -hmm. You know, It's all about telling your story. Yeah, I mean, the like my, my most recent book, which is called, um, uh, well, it's actually in a book called, uh, it's a collection of book called uh, All the Secrets. And um, the, the novel that I, that, that's in there, along with a couple of magic tricks, is called Hurtling Through the Air and Hitting Things on the Way Down. And, um, and I decided with that book, which is my third book, to actually go in a different direction with the plot and make it so that so that every chapter, things flip, and everything changes. So the the whole structure of everything changes, and um, some writers write like that. There's um, David Mamet sometimes writes like that uh, with his films, and um, there are authors who write like that. And I thought it's a very exciting way to put together a book, and I decided to do it that way. And um, and yeah, people are excited by it. Excellent. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and what are just um, while I have you what are some other books of yours that listeners can check out 
um, if they were to search? Well, I published a book a couple years ago called um, What Happens to Us, which is basically, uh, you know, I was concerned with warrantless surveillance during the Bush administration. And I, I started thinking about, you know, what would happen if, if somebody who was in warrantless surveillance was actually was obsessed with a woman and was sociopathic. And I, I wrote it from the woman's point of view, who's being pursued. And it's, it's basically a thriller. But the, uh, the leading man turns out to be, uh, not, the, uh, not the guy who's chasing her, but the leading man turns out to be a magician. So I was able to talk a lot about magic in that too. Excellent. Yeah. It all connects. Yeah. Um, oh, so I want to know uh, about your very best show ever and maybe your very worst show ever, if you haven't uh, blacked the latter one out. <laughs> no. Well, to tell you the truth, I, I, you know, part of my personality is that I tend to focus on the mistakes. So I remember those those bad shows. Perfectionist. Yeah, perfectionist. Yes. So um, I don't know. My best show uh, may have been this uh, motivational presentation that I did for Cal State Long Beach for um, the facilities management department uh, about 2008. When um, <laughs> I, I I did this motivational show, it was half an hour long. And um, I knew it was an important show. They were paying me a, a lot of money. And I, I um, unfortunately, I was not able to get to sleep that night. And so in the morning, I got up from bed, having not slept a wink, and I thought, I got to do this show. And I went in there and I just, I, you know, that, that's what comes from practice and knowing your show so well that your muscles can do it because my mind was gone. My muscles did that show. And uh, afterwards, I was, you know, I, I made a couple of little lapses. I think I may have repeated a joke once or something like that. But afterwards, the client ran up and she said, that was a great show. <laughs> and I thought, oh, if you only knew. <laughs> and then uh, my worst show. Well, early on, I... Early on, I did a show uh, on Halloween at a like a, a Chinese and Mexican like sw indoor swap meet in Westminster, and it was everybody was dressed up in costumes, and and they so I was doing magic. I was going to do a show, and the woman said to me, she said, "Do you want to be on radio?" we've got a radio station here that's telecasting. I said, well, you know, I'm doing magic. People have to see it. They said, that's okay. Just, you know, they'll, they'll hear the audience respond. Well, not only was it on radio, but it was on Spanish language radio, which I can only half speak Spanish. So it, it was pretty, a pretty messed up show. <laughs> and wow. most, a lot of people in the audience didn't understand, you know, I, I used to do magic on the street, on the Third Street Promenade, and I actually wrote a book about it in 1998 called Be a Street Magician. Huh. And uh, and when I went out there, you could always, you know, you go out there, and my show is based on, you know, a, a lot of the jokes are based on, based on language, and clever language, and all that, and people, when, when people understand the jokes, they love it, it's great. But sometimes you look at an audience, 
and you go, hmm. nobody understands the language here. You know, there's uh, there's uh, Persians and there's uh, Hispanics uh, who are just you know just over the border uh, into the country. Different people, Koreans and different people, and you you know you tell this really clever joke, <laughs> and you look at it the audience and nobody's laughing, <laughs> and you go, you know, why don't we just shut the show right down down right now and I can save a lemon, you know. <laughs> so, uh, what are some of the best ways for people to keep up with you? Well, I do have a a, a Facebook fan page called uh, the Magic of David Groves. I have a uh, a blog on WordPress called What Happens to Us, which uh, has a lot of my writing on it, and I do some magic writing there too. Um, I have um, I have a web page, david-groves.com. Oh, have you had any interesting um, uh, or you know unusual clients as far as? Um... Well, I have had um, I have had a lot of celebrity clients. You know, living in Los Angeles, you have a lot of celebrity clients. Should I mention some of them? Um, you can do that, or also I was thinking people that maybe had um, gotten into magic later in life that maybe had paid you to teach them magic, um, beyond just doing performances, haven't you? Like random rich dudes paid you to come teach them magic because uh. they had nothing else going on and they didn't know what to do with all their money. I have had a couple of students, um, one of them was a race car driver who could, uh, who really wanted to learn the secrets of magic. And, you know, you go over to his house and you can tell that he really just loves playing. You know, he's a race car driver because he loves driving, you know. Just never grew up. Never grew up. <laughs> he had, you know, this fantastic aquarium wow. and uh, this big, long aquarium in his living room and then uh, all sorts of toys of all sorts. Did he live by the beach? No, <laughs> he lived in Corona, actually. And, you know, I've, I have performed for a bunch of celebrities, um, Tom Cruise and... Uh, Harrison Ford. I performed at Harrison Ford's uh, airplane hangar in Santa Monica. Who now he's actually crashed twice, hasn't he? Yeah, I think so. I, I, I saw him before he crashed. You know, in his airplane hangar with that yellow plane that crashed. They 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 were just having a party, and they they hired me. They didn't tell me until I got there um, who who it was going to be, and uh, that's that's what often happens. And then um, uh, all sorts of um, let me see, Candace Bergen and Norman Lear, Kwame Brown, all sorts of celebrities. So I, I actually was performing for a for a hockey star uh, a couple of weekends ago, and he got really drunk and started crying. So <laughs> in the middle of your performance? No, at the party. At the party. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for being with us today, David. It was yeah. great having you. Yeah. Great, you've got a great thing going here. Your mind okay. works in really interesting ways. <laughs>